You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, today we have a very special guest with us, joining us from down under, Mr. Dan Bolton, who is the host of the incredibly successful podcast, On the Step. And I have to admit, he's actually the inspiration for this podcast. And of course, at all, as always, I'm joined by my co-pilot, Abby Kellett. Great to be back, Steve. So I'm really pretty excited to be here. We have an awesome guest just putting out amazing content on his podcast. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. We're really big fans. Thanks very much for having me, guys. It's awesome to uh, to inspire you to start your own uh, seaplane podcast. Any seaplane podcast that we can have out there, as many as possible, is always good. So, yeah, thanks very much for having me on the show as, uh, as one of your guests. Oh, that's awesome. So you cover a lot of backstory on your uh, podcast, but can you give us a little history of your journey and, and uh, how you got started flying and, and how this all began? Yeah, mate. So my, uh, my history is, um, it, as you mentioned, well documented with a few uh, interviews, including one of my own uh, on my podcast, but basically got into flying um, through my family, through my dad, who flew seaplanes at his own company in Geelong, uh, down in Victoria, where I grew up. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, look, it was around when I was in kind of grade nine or, or year nine, year, year 10, and um, I didn't really know where I wanted to go with my career. And um, he had this seaplane business running, and I thought, look, I might as well give us a crack. So when I finished year 12, I, I went and got my pilot's license, uh, finished that in a year and a half, and then... I wasn't going down the seaplane path straight away. Um, I think my dad kind of pushed me down the aviation because that was around 2007 that I finished school. And at that stage, the airlines were really hiring uh, quite a lot of pilots. Um, not that I was airline driven either. I just didn't really know what I wanted to do at, at 17, 18 years old. But um, once I finished my license, um, the GFC hit and then there was really no pilot jobs. So... I was stuck for about six months stacking shelves at Coles, which I'd been doing for the last five years to kind of pay for my training and everything uh, and, and a bit of in, in school time as well. But um, yeah, then, then dad needed a bit of help over summer. So I went and got my flight endorsement and started working with him. And basically, I think being his son, um, he pushed me right in the deep end and, and I basically did as much flying as possible over that summer. And then I think he got used to uh, sitting back and relaxing while I did all, all the flying. So um, he kept me on for a year and a half until I eventually moved on and, and kind of made my own way through the seaplane uh, aviation lifestyle and career-wise. So wow, that's that... interesting. Yeah. So um, I actually, I come from my dad, you know, having a not seaplane background, but he's aviation guy. He builds the old stuff up at Fantasy of Flight here in Florida. And it's just kind of interesting, you know, I really, I can feel that always being around aviation, but not necessarily, you know, that being the only path for you. And so 17 years old, that's when I got my license and I had no idea what I was going to do with it. And I knew that the airlines weren't the only option. And so it's just, it's interesting to see someone else who has found a route that, you know, they, you obviously enjoy doing and you want to share with people. 
And I'm jealous. Yeah, and like because I didn't come from an aviation family. Aww. <laughs> uh, you're the special one, Steve. Uh, yeah, I'm the That's special right. kid with the, the dunce cap on. <laughs> and you ended up in a Grumman Mallard. So how did that happen? Well, yeah, we're, we're very lucky here in Australia. I mean, when now the after interviewing so many people from the States, I realize how lucky you guys are uh, with all the seaplane activity uh, you've got. But... Yeah, we can claim this one. We've got three um, commercially operated Grumman Mallard turboprops uh, in Australia, uh, which is very unique. The last three that are operating commercially in the world. So, um, and once again, you know, like this job, it's up in the top end of Darwin, you know, top end of Australia here in Darwin. And um, look, it was always on the radar early on, but um, I think when you go through the seaplane pilot lifestyle for a while, you know, single pilot, Flying, you know, I was flying in the Whitsundays for a while there out to beaches and out to the reef and everything. And this job on the Mallard was, was more of an airliner style of job, uh, you know, two crew IFR and right. you started off as a, as a first officer. So I think it, it didn't initially kind of attract my attention a lot. Um, to be honest, back in the day, I was, my goal was to be a twin otter captain in the Maldives and to get there, what I needed was an ATPL. So, right. You talk about that in the um, podcast. And, yeah, and um, it's, it's really hard to get those night hours up as a seaplane pilot, you know. Um, so I actually left flying floats for a little bit there to get an IFR job to, to kind of start building some time in different areas, I guess. Never, never intending to go down the airline route again, but just trying to kind of broaden my experience. And, um, yeah, look, this job on the Mallard, it kind of ticked all the boxes for, for, for building those hours even further. And, um, but once I got on there, you know, I, I absolutely have just fallen in love with the airplane. It is one of the most incredible aircraft to fly. And, um, I think the hull aspect as well is, is another incredible aspect, um, that's so unique flying a hull aircraft. And this, this machine is, is an absolute weapon. I've spoken about that a lot of times on the right. podcast, but, uh, it's an absolute handful on the water um, and then you kind of delve into the history of the aircraft and, and how unique it is as well. Um, it's just, yeah, as I mentioned over the last kind of nearly four years now, I've just absolutely fallen in love with this aircraft and, um, yeah, it's, it's been an incredible experience. Yeah. So the, the Grumman brotherhood and sisterhood, uh, that we belong to. So I'm, I'm sure it's similar to the, uh, Albatross and, you know, you kind of roll the yoke all the way over and then pull it with your, your forearm into your chest for takeoff. And then it's a balancing of the props and, and rolling out the, uh, the yoke and, and the ailerons uh, to come on step. Is, is that similar to the albatross? Absolutely, mate. Yeah, but I think the biggest thing with the mallard is that the difference in um, payload or, or takeoff weight, I should say, with different payloads. So, for example, we... We can have a ton and a half of, or one point two ton of payload there, and, and take us up to our uh, max takeoff weight of around six point three ton, and then you're doing exactly that. Um, you know, full right aileron, full stick back, basically into your chest, and then full uh, right rudder as well, and then you're leading with the left engine, so everything wants to go left really bad. Mm-hmm. Some of the aircraft do it more than others. Um, and then you're basically setting the power as a multi-crew. We kind of push the powers up to um, near about full 
full takeoff power, and then the the first officer, or sorry, the the pilot uh, monitoring will then uh, adjust those um, power settings to as a more of a fine adjustment. Because obviously, being in a, in a seaplane, you could be in some quite rough water. So, with your hands up above your head there pushing the power forward with getting smashed with some waves as you start accelerating <laughs> to get on the step, um, trying to set a really fine power setting uh, with your head in the cockpit is really not what you want as a pilot flying. So uh, we let the, the pilot monitoring just adjust the torques once we um, take over. And then it's just it's the full wrestle just starts with trying to get this thing up and uh, and avoid purpose, uh, porpoising, you know what I mean? Um, so you're then releasing that aileron, releasing that rudder and just uh, playing with the elevator there to um, to set an attitude that will stop the aircraft from porpoising and um, or avoid porpoising altogether and and then once you've kind of got it up around 60 knots there you're pretty safe and you can get going but as I mentioned with that payload you know we could be then empty with a light fuel load and we're almost two tons different and then it behaves completely differently again with you know with so much power of those PD6s the thing just leaps up out of the water um, and it's, you know, you could be airborne in kind of 15 seconds versus say maybe 40 seconds. So it all happens a lot quicker, um, that it almost kind of just launches out of the water and almost falls back on like a bit of a, bit of a whale coming out of the, you know, doing a breach out of the water there. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a handful, but, um, you know, you get used to it over time and, um, yeah, it's, it's very rewarding and, and fun job. Yeah, and so, you know, that was the, the largest multi-engine seaplane I had flown before the Albatross was the Twin CB. And I think one of the greatest things that attracted me to the Albatross immediately was just how physical that process is of going from idle taxi to step taxi and takeoff, because it, it is a very physical, coordinated experience. Yeah, it is. And um, it's it's a frustrating one as well when you're first learning you know, because, you know, I'd come from a reasonable amount of experience in the, you know, float plane world. Um, I think I had about two and a half thousand, three thousand hours or something like that uh, of float flying. And at that stage, I felt pretty confident on the water and, and pretty competent. And, you know, one of the things I like to say, I was when I was working in Vietnam, I did a stint over there for 11 months and I was doing a bit of training with some, with some of the first officers who were local guys who were upgrading to command. And, I just remember sitting in that right seat and, and these guys would get up on the step in the EX caravan and um, I could just, I knew exactly that I had to just move that control column like maybe half a centimetre back or forward just to hit the sweet spot on the steps. You know, that's how much you, in your own mind you, you knew that aeroplane back to front. But when it came to the Mallard, it's just one day you got a takeoff from the right-hand seat, you know, starting off as a, a first officer there. You'd, you'd do a takeoff and it would, would work out really well and then the next day you'd you'd do another one and it was you felt like it was exactly the same but this thing would almost uh, launch out of the air doing you know these random porpoises everywhere and you're just like how the hell do I fix this what am I doing differently (laughs) that you know last time compared to this time and maybe it was the weight maybe it was you know the water conditions that affected it because obviously we're also operating in open ocean as well so some of the swell that we have to work with is can be quite rough um, and that can affect uh, your process of getting it on the step as well. So, yeah, it's super variable. But um, And one of the other factors for us with this operation as well is we don't do a lot of water work. So, you know, our general mission is flying from Darwin out to the Pearl Farms, which are about anywhere from an hour and 50 to two and a half hours away, one way. So 
it, like I said before, it's a bit of an airliner-style job. You're sitting up in the cruise and talking rubbish or listening to your favourite seaplane podcast all the way to uh, your destination there um, before landing on the water. And, and then also being multi-crew, you've got to share that um, share that time between your two. Um, so one is pilot monitoring, one is pilot flying. So there, there's not a lot of water work, but... Um, yeah, that, that, that's one of the factors we're trying to get your head around um, taming this beast. Yeah, and there's a lot of crew resource, like you were saying, of hand, handling off the, the throttles on takeoff and things like that because the airplane is such a handful. And I think the big difference from flying floats is getting that sponson out of the water and, again, that physical side. So it's it's a little bit intimidating from going to floats to the flying boats because it is there's there's more going on. There's a lot more going on. Yeah, and you're sitting a lot lower in the in the water, which is um, very interesting as well. Um, as you mentioned, yeah, keeping that lateral um, um, wings level through the through the step phase there is critical as well. You know, I think the best analogy I can come up with is that you know the, the float plane is like the car that has you know two points of contact on the ground, whereas the flying boat is like the bicycle that has just the one point of contact. So you've got that balance issue as well. Um, but yeah, it's, overall, it's, made, it's, it's an absolute uh, pleasure to be flying such an, a unique and um, you know, incredible aircraft. I really like that, the car versus the bike. I'm going to take that back to my students, <laughs> so thank you. How, the flying yeah. boat doesn't have training How, wheels like the float. It's true. <laughs> no, exactly. You can't throw the training wheels off. <laughs> um, Ganging the training wheels off. Tell Ben off. that one, Abby. Oh, I will because he loves the metaphor, so I will absolutely tell I'm writing that down now. <laughs> car versus bicycle. <laughs> So getting back to that podcast, you said you're listening to your favorite airplane podcast. I love that. So, you know, you were the inspiration for the best seaplane podcast. That's right. So you are inspiration for this podcast, bringing that love that you obviously have to the community, the aviation community. Where did the inspiration for your podcast come from? Um, yeah, it's a bit of a funny story, I guess, I you know, I wasn't big into podcasts at all before I started this. I really hadn't listened to many at all. Um, a mate of mine I play a lot of golf with up here in Darwin is a good mate. Um, he got me onto some golf podcasts. And um, when so our seasons up here, we go from uh, in Darwin we have a wet season and a dry season. So the wet season is our summer, so we get a lot of rain and it's very hot and humid. And then our dry season is our winter, but it's still very hot. It doesn't really kind of go cold here at, at any stage. Right. So um. Our charter season for flying happens in our dry season, which we've just finished, basically. Um, so it, it would be your summer, basically. Um, so when COVID hit this year, it was kind of at the end of our wet season, which was which is pretty slow for us as pilots. Um, we're only just doing our regular purling runs, which are really only gives you one or two days a week of flying. Um, and then we lead into our charter season, which can ramp it up a little bit more and we're doing we're actually really trying to push a lot of charter work we're doing some safari stuff as well like overnights in the kimberley it's some amazing camps using the mallard so we're actually allowing a lot more passengers who would not normally fly on the mallard to go out there that's awesome um but yeah which is which is really exciting um but when covid hit that kind of just basically killed all of our charter season this year so um, work was still pretty slow and um, recently well, in November last year nearly a year ago um, we had our first child my wife and I and uh, I was just finding myself on standby days where I was walking him along our um, the waterfront where I live and um, I was just 
finding music was pretty boring. So I started listening to these golf podcasts and then I was like, you know what, I could, I should be listening to some aviation podcasts here, trying to learn some new stuff about aviation. You know, like I was trying to think about maybe I could do some study whilst I'm, I'm walking, you know, um, because I think with music, your mind just kind of goes off into tangents and whatnot and you kind of find yourself being a bit bored. So I started searching for aviation podcasts and um, I found this great one, uh, Pilot to Pilot. He's another American dude who does some great um, aviation podcasts out there and he interviews people from all walks of aviation, which is which is really cool. Um, but I found myself going through his list and just looking for the seaplane interviews that he did. So, <laughs> And um, I ended up getting in contact with him and I actually got, did an interview for him on episode 104, uh, which was the first time I'd, I'd, I'd been on a podcast. And then um, I was kind of like, you know what, I, I reckon I could do this. Like, I'd had a bit of experience making some YouTube stuff, just making long videos. I've always loved playing around with video editing. Um, and I've used GarageBand a little bit, which is what I use my uh, podcast um, to, to edit on. Um, and I was just like, you know what, I think this... I could I could achieve this, so I basically just kind of knuck, knuckled down for a few days, wrote up a kind of bit of a plan of attack of how I'd do it, and went and looked online, researched, and and got myself a mic and um, a few other little things that make it kind of a bit more easier to to do these interviews, and um, yeah, lined up a few people and and started from there. So and really, I think because of COVID, I I had a lot of extra time, so. At the start there, I was just like, you know what, I can knock out two episodes a week for sure. I did that for a while there. And um, now I think with, with a kid that's 11 months old and starting to walk around and you don't really get much time to, to do anything else other than look after him and, and with a bit of work. And now my wife is also seven months pregnant again. Um, it's a bit harder to do the two a week. But then I think also I I look at On The Step as um, as a bit of a marathon and I've kind of jumped out of the gates in the first kind of couple of kilometres or miles, as you folks speak over there, um, and I've really sprinted pretty hard. And I don't want to burn myself out. No, you know, I'm in this for the long run, and I want to produce some really good content over a long period of time. So I think the one a week is gonna is gonna do that. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about the whole show. And like I said, I mentioned this to you guys before we started this episode. I, I look at. Um, how many episodes I've got out there now and what kind of content it covers. And I'm just like, how the hell did that happen? Like, this was a dream six months ago. And um, yeah, here it is with all these episodes. So, yeah, it's been good fun. You're knocking it out of the park. And I'm just laughing here uh, as we sit here because I'm like, this sounds like a pyramid scheme. You listen to your first podcast, you get inspired to do it. You appear on a podcast, <laughs> then you start your own. I appear on your podcast, you inspire me, and here we are talking to each other on it's this podcast. Spreading. It's spreading. It's like a disease. And for only $9.99 a month, Steve, you can make your own podcast happen. <laughs> That's awesome. So I, and, and, you know, to just to add fuel to the fire, I guess here, um, we're literally sitting here and I'm getting texted by a, a good friend of ours, Kevin Oaks, uh, who's the Southeast distributor for uh, Aviat Husky. And uh, he's a real passionate member, and, and he actually uh, was working at Progressive Aerodyne and engineered us getting the Progressive Aerodyne Sea Ray that we, we flew for two years. But he just texted me as we're, we're talking, and he says, Hi, Steve. Kevin Oaks from Aviat Husky. I hope all is well with you. Just wanted to let you know I've been listening to the new podcast. 
Uh, I'm so glad you guys did this. I've been listening to On the Step for quite some time. Well done. Glad I can add SBA to the list. So thank you, Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) That's very cool. And I love stories like that. You know, I had had a guy the other day who was uh, flight training in Alaska, and he sent me a message saying, oh, look, you know, I've been loving the show. Um, I got told about it by one of the instructors over here, and, you know, I wanted to suggest a guest for the future and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, it's so cool that there's some guy who's teaching in, in Alaska, and he's got a new student who comes in and he goes, hey, here's some podcasts you should listen to all about flying seaplanes. I'm like, that's pretty neat. Oh, that's awesome. So I just think it, it's cool. So when, when Abby and I started talking about her coming on board at SBA, I said, I've got this idea. I want to start a podcast. She goes, have you heard that guy, that Mallard guy? He's, <laughs> he's on fire. Everyone I know is listening to Daniel. <laughs> you, said, you were hot stuff, hot topic around um, Jack Brown's. So. What do you mean were, Abby? <laughs> oh, 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 man. I would like to dial back a little bit. So you still are. You are the talk of the town here. <laughs> so aside from the podcast, you're really, I know, active on Instagram, which is, is where Kevin picked us up with our podcast. Uh, you, you've been doing some YouTube stuff, Facebook, social media in general. Uh, so uh, we're so thankful for all the images and videos that you're putting out there. Uh, but what makes you want to bring all of this knowledge to the aviation community? I mean, you you appeared on a podcast, you like the format, um, but what's what's the grand driver? I think it's just my passion for flying seaplanes, to be honest. Um, yeah, I, I love hearing seaplane stories and I love sharing them as well. And I, I just think that the seaplane world is just so unique Um you know, we spoke about it before, Abby, there where, you know, you didn't have to go down the airline route, but then you can't even look at seaplanes as just one route as well. Like there are there's so many branches in the seaplane industry as well, you know, like um, whether it be Fireboss or, or instructing or, you know, like the IFR flying that I do on a Mallard or there's some stuff in Asia that you can be on a caravan flying multi-crew IFR or, you know, but there's a goose, you know, over in... Canada there that's, that's still operating commercially um, you know and then I, I looked at other aspects of it as well like um, how floats are built you know I spoke with uh, with both Whip Air and PK floats and, and talked about that I did a bit of stuff on, on engineering wise with seaplanes um, so yeah I think there's and I'll probably also the adventure side of it as well I think you know I, I interviewed um, Michael Smith who's an Australian guy who who became the first ever pilot to fly around the world in a single uh, engine seaplane, which was about four or five years ago uh, in a sea ray. Wow. And, um, you know, wow. he, he just yeah, he just recently bought uh, one of the Sea Bear aircraft out of um, Russia uh, for yep. his own personal yes, use back in here in Melbourne. And, yeah, he flew, retraced the steps of the Vickers Vimy um, Great Air Race flight from I think it was from London back to Australia, which actually came through Darwin. It finished in Darwin, which is um, pretty cool because we don't get to see a lot of stuff here in Darwin. But, um, you know, I interviewed him about that aircraft as well. Um, Yeah, I think in the end it's just the stories. You know, I I could interview a seaplane pilot a hundred times and everyone's story is different and still quite interesting, I think. So, um, and one of the things that have come out of it, I think, uh, because of creating this content is, is I'm focusing a lot on safety messages as well. Um, 
the gear down water landing is a real big passion of mine that it shouldn't happen at all. Yes. Um, so I've done a couple of episodes on that. I did one that was a presentation um, that I presented to the Seaplane Pilots Association of Australia last year. Um, it was a PowerPoint, so I had to kind of modify it a little bit for a podcast, but I think I still got the message through on that one, and that was a very popular episode as well. And then um, I, I recently interviewed two pilots who had actually been in seaplane uh, gear down water landing accidents, including one who was the pilot who ended my dad's business. Um, he he wow. was the one who um, landed my dad's seaplane um, gear down in front of his own eyes. Um, and, look, you know, that was um, – I think that was incredible that he was happy to come on board. There was n- there was never any, uh, you know, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to use the word hate, but there was never any of that behind it. It was a, it was an accident that happens, but uh, it was very incredible for him to come on and share his experience so that it hopefully would stop others doing it in the future. Um, so that was incredible as well. So yeah, there's I think there's some good safety messages there as well that people can get out, but. But yeah, I hope I just hope everyone's just enjoying it and um, and and kind of listening to different aspects in the seaplane industry. Yeah, you know how I feel about safety and, and gear down. So we we've had that discussion, and I'm sure it's not the last time we'll have that discussion. So I look forward to doing more about that. And you know, you've had such a wide variety of these interviewees, so it's so interesting that you say this because it's actually my next question here. Because you know, the biggest question we get at the SPA, and even you know when I'm flying with students. And they do this amazing flying. They have so much fun and their face just falls because they know or they think, like, I'm never going to be able to do this again. I'm never going to be able to fly a seaplane again. And, you know, what you're doing is essentially answering that question through your podcast. You know, look at what these people are doing. Look at the careers they have. This is possible. So what would you tell a pilot? You know, I know you're telling them through the podcast, but directly, what would you tell a pilot interested in seaplane flying? but unsure of where to take that interest? Um, yeah, I think just go and, go and explore the different avenues that there are. I mean, obviously, you guys in the States have just got such a, a variety of different operators that you can go and, and, you know, check out anywhere from, you know, Alaska to Florida. There's just, I mean, just that in in its own self is just a, two different worlds of seaplane flying, um, you know, high mountain terrain and, and weather and, cold versus tropical and uh, flat, I imagine, down in Florida and uh, along the Bahamas there, you know, they're just two different worlds themselves. So, yeah, I mean, if they're really interested in getting to the seaplane career, I think really do some investigating in, in what kind of paths you can go down just in that career alone. Um, you know, these days with social media, with, with the internet and everything, the world is so much smaller and people can do a lot of research online Um to find out what paths they want to go down relatively easily. So, yeah, but but don't give up as well, and don't think that just because you've done your float plane endorsement and you've finished it and you've, uh, you've you're waving goodbye to Abby at the door of uh, Jack Brown's <laughs> that um, it's all it's all the end. You know, um, I think it's incredible what Tropic Ocean Airways are doing there at the moment, and I'm, I'm sure they're not the only one. But I spoke to a few people from there about mm-hmm. their the ability that they can now employ 250-hour seaplane-rated pilots to come in and be right-hand seat of a caravan uh, on floats. I think that's um, that's an incredible step um, going forward for to building seaplane pilots really in, a, in America but probably worldwide. Um, hopefully, 
there are some other companies that follow suit with that. Obviously, it's all work dependent as well. You can't just throw a caravan um, on floats and multi-crew it um, when there's only work for a 182 or something like that. But right. um, you know, I think that's one thing in Australia that we're lacking at the moment. We don't have those jobs that people can kind of come into with really low hours. And so it does make it really hard to kind of get that break in the industry sometimes. Um, but yeah, just I think it's those people who are so passionate and really want to follow their dreams and they're the ones who work hard enough to make it happen. So it's interesting that you say that. You know, it really is just a little bit of creativity. I I can't say that, you know, anyone has really held my hand as I go through my journey in aviation um, so much as, you know, you go to a 141 and you are you are going to fly for this regional for this amount of time and you pretty much have it planned out, which I suppose is very, very nice for some people, you know, the security of it. Otherwise, you know, if you want to get in a seaplane flying, you have to get a little creative, talk Absolutely. to people, you know, listen to podcasts. Yeah. And, and what I tell yeah. people is, you know, people are like, well, how do I get engaged in this? How do I make this happen? How do I get a seaplane job? Well, the, the biggest thing is get involved in the community in the first place. Get in the, insert yeah. yourself into the community. Yeah. And one of the, you talk about creativity, Abby, one of my favorite episodes of uh, On the Step is um, with Shane McCauley, who was also the guest um, guest host when I did my own kind of interview through the, the podcast. Um, he He's a New Zealander. He, he was actually flying at Air New Zealand in the airlines. He'd been flying for 20 odd years. And um, there was, he wanted to get into floats. He wanted to take some time away from airline flying and become a float plane pilot and go back to being, you know, bush at heart because he, he really is a bush pilot at heart. He's, his parents own a Cub and a 185 on wheels in Wanaka in New Zealand, which is an incredible place. Um, but to get a float plane endorsement, he, he spoke with a guy in the North Island who had a Cub on floats and the guy wasn't really interested in doing a, an endorsement unless he bought it. So we literally said, yep, I'll buy it. Uh, took a took an extra loan out on the home loan, bought this carb on floats in the North Island and then flew it down to his home and just found a place at a caravan park to keep this thing on a trailer and literally built up like 150 hours of float plane flying just, just on his own, basically learning the ropes so that he could apply for jobs in Canada and, and he ended up doing a couple of seasons at Tyax Adventures in Canada and uh, also a bit of a stint in the Maldives six months before COVID. So talk about creativity. I know we don't all have a bit of cash uh, and you know, around to buy our own airplane just to build ours, but that's that's the kind of effort he went into just to be able to say that he'd been a float plane for a couple of seasons. So and he's very creativity is definitely one thing. Yeah, but like, I mean, just the dedication you have to have to make that happen for yourself. I mean, the money is wonderful, what you have, what you can do, but... You know, I, I got into the right seat of a caravan with 10 hours of seaplane time and just a little bit of luck. So yeah, I think a that's a, yeah, unbelievable. I mean, because my my experience was you always had to have 1,500 hours. You, had, you know, you had to have at least 500 hours of seaplane time. And then Abby's telling me this story and I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I snuck in. She snuck in under the radar. Snuck in. <laughs> no, but that's but I think that's great that they're doing that, and you can start to to build time in the right hand seat and and learn from other experienced pilots. Because uh, Steve, you'd know as well. Um, you know, once you step in that float plane for the first time, um, the, that's when the learning starts. It doesn't all happen in the you know Jack Browns there or other. I shouldn't keep saying Jack Browns because I know that you're a seaplane <laughs> wide, um, but um, 
yeah, you know, you, you, it's a license to learn. So you go out there and you have to start learning how to fly, you know, all these different areas and, and, and learning the wonderful world of floats by yourself. So, you know, what Abby would have gone down to, to sit in the right-hand seat there and learn from these experienced pilots. Um, geez, I wish I had that when I started as well, you know. <laughs> yeah. You learn so much from people. I mean, asking questions like what you're learning in your podcasts, I'm sure it's just opening your eyes to a completely whole world of seaplane flying. Yeah, it is. And, you know, interviewing so many different people, and it really gets the juices flowing and, and makes me want to do all these random different things in the seaplane world that I never thought I would. Um, and it was it was cool to hear um, my latest episode, number 35, um, with uh, Edda Navasarada, um, who's a fire boss pilot in Sweden, um, Spanish guy. You know, he got in contact with me, be- and this guy's a chief pilot of a Spanish, um, uh, sorry, of a Swedish firebombing company, and he's telling me that he's learning stuff from my podcast. Like, that's pretty cool. That's you know, amazing. From, from the stories, yeah, the stories that are, are shared through the, the podcast there. So, um, yeah, it's co- really cool to hear feedback like that. Yeah, it's it's really cool. So, what do we have uh, to expect in the future from your podcast? Mate, uh, I've got so much content that I can get out there. It's um, one of the things, as I mentioned before, uh, when I started off at two episodes a week, I it was just because there was so many cool people to talk to and so many cool stories to get out there and. I was like a kid in a candy shop. I was just like, I want that one, and I want to put this one out, and I need people to listen to this guy as well, and I need to interview this guy. It was, it was just like, where do I, where do I, how do I slow down? You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> so yourself. I've literally, yeah, I've literally got um, a list of fifty people that I want to get in contact with. Um, wow! And and that's like that's a year's worth of podcasting, and and the, the list just keeps growing and growing. So. Um, and He's I become keep a pad- podcast addict. <laughs> yeah, I have. Yeah, I have exactly. <laughs> but um, you know, I've recorded. Uh, I think I've got four episodes in the bank at the moment. Um, I like to say that. Um, so um, I like to have a few there, so that maybe I can have a, a couple of date nights with the wife or something like that. You know what I mean? And then not have to stress too much about podcasting. <laughs> Keeps her happy as well. Um. But next episode, I, I'm not sure when you're exactly going to release this one, so it might already be out by now, but um, I'm really excited about this one. I'm talking with um, a really uh, popular Instagrammer uh, known as Cessna Tour, T-E-U-R, and he's got he puts so much effort into creating these posts about the most interesting, not just seaplanes, but aircraft in general, Um and, and if you ever see a Cessna Tour post, there is just, you know, a, a solid hour's worth of work of just doing research to be able to create this long post with a backstory on this on these aircraft. So I've got him to come on board and um, he's given me a list of his 10 most unique seaplanes that have ever flown. And I must say the list is, is really cool. It's a really fun um, episode. Um, I've got another conversation with a, another Fireboss pilot here in Australia talking a lot about the um, the lifestyle of a firebombing pilot and and there's a bit of ag content in there as well, which which is quite interesting. I think most of the seaplane pilots out there would be interested in the ag lifestyle and a bit of ag flying. Um, I'm very and that's interested, cool to have that so I can vouch yeah. for that. Yeah, it's just it, some of the stories, I mean, 
I like to keep everything seaplane orientated, but sometimes you have to kind of go off off the tangent there as well a little bit to to hear someone's background and 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 some of the stories um, are incredible. A good example of that is Rob Cerevolo. Um, you know, how can you not interview that guy and and not talk about um, or how can you interview that guy and not talk about Top Gun? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm going to be I'm going to be asking him about carrier landings and everything, and you know, and then we'll finish with about five minute seaplane talk because <laughs> I'm interested in all the all the other stuff as well. But um, so yeah, that's that's cool. Bit of ag kind of in, introduced into the uh, into the show a little bit, and um, a couple of boys on Instagram who run a page called Best of Both Aviation. So only speaking to them. Okay. Yeah. Um, basically their concept is that um, one guy's followed the, the airline route, one guy's followed the float route, and um, so they're putting out a page that's basically the best of both. So they kind of put up photos to share both of their kind of um, career paths. So that's that's a cool one as well. Um, and then, as I mentioned, yeah, from there on, it's just a list of super interesting, um, incredible people within our um, amazing industry. Oh, that's awesome. So... In five and a half months, 35 episodes, uh, what, uh, 20,000 plus listeners so far, uh, an amazing job. If you guys are not listening to uh, On Step, That Mallard Guy, then you must. And Daniel, I really want to thank you for joining us. I know it's very early over there in the morning, and I really appreciate you getting up and and sharing some time with us, and um, thank you. I look forward to more. Yeah, no worries, Steve. I know that you came on the show, and and you had to get up very early for my conversation, so a little bit of payback, but um, no, it's been awesome, and and well done on, on creating this, you know, podcast as well. It's going to be great to, to work with you guys and, um, and to hear more of the content that you're getting out as well. So, yeah, congratulations. I look forward to having you back on soon. Sounds good. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.